Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and I thank you for joining us today. Living in a state where medical marijuana has been legal for some time has made me forget the excitement of being open for business under a brand new legislation. It is truly astonishing to watch the pace at which the industry rallies to help get new cannabis entrepreneurs up to speed and the pace at which these new business owners take what they learn and apply it toward navigating the compassionate care market. I saw this in action last year at the first annual World Medical Cannabis Conference and Expo in the city of Pittsburgh. Practically minutes after the state of Pennsylvania enacted their new medical marijuana policy, the atmosphere was electric with that odd but magical combination of excitement and trepidation. Renowned speakers and seasoned experts and exhibitors flew in from Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and other regulation states to give Pennsylvania patients, doctors, and future business owners a glimpse into the future cannabis economy in their state. So fast forward a year later, I was invited back to Pittsburgh to speak at the second annual World Medical Cannabis Conference and Expo, and I found it heartwarming to see that Pennsylvania's medical cannabis industry is thriving. Local exhibitors and speakers seemed to outnumber the experts flown in from other regulation states, and it, it seemed there were twice as many attendees, in the thousands at least. Comparing the atmosphere with that of last year, it appeared that any sense of trepidation had all but disappeared. Even outside of the convention, people I spoke with seemed to have fully embraced regulation of medical marijuana. So before I introduce our guest, who I happened to meet at this convention, I'd like to just give a shout out to Compassionate Certification Centers, Dr. Brian Donner, Melanie Kachi, Ken Schultz, the team at Proven Media for all of their incredible work. I mean, they really knocked it out of the park this year. So today I wanted to introduce you to a doctor who was there speaking on a panel, which by the way, was moderated by Dr. Brian Donner, who you know is the host of our Medical Marijuana Minute. Meet Benjamin Kaplan. He is a board-certified family medicine physician whose passion for compassionate care led him to research and recommend the usage of medical cannabis as an option for a myriad of ailments. He regularly oversees the clinical administration of medical cannabis and takes pride in seeing his patients respond successfully to treatments. As a community leader, he believes he has a responsibility to educate the public, patients, and 
fellow practitioners on the ways in which medical cannabis can promote wellness. So Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Stuart, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about your experience at the conference to start with. My impressions were all really positive. So much um, live energy walking around and everybody's really excited about you know, showing what their booth is about or other people engaging to, to share sort of their experiences and their curiosity. Everybody's really outgoing and engaging was really a thrill to be a part of. Yeah, it was quite a difference from last year. I felt the atmosphere was just one of really embracing all of this. And you've actually, you're from Massachusetts and they just actually began regulating cannabis for adult use as well. But what were some of your experiences when they first passed their medical marijuana uh, legislation? Um, the legislation has been cooking for a long time. 2012 is when uh, medical first rose onto the scene. And between then and July of this year, it's been a eye-opening transition. For the culture, primarily, it's, it's been a slow shift. Um, you know, as patients sort of warm up to the idea that this is a choice people make and want to make, as physicians start to realize that there's some medical benefit here, that it's not just the sort of reefer madness that we have expected in, in the past, um, Basically, the whole culture is, is coming around to realizing the benefits. And with the difference, now that they're regulating cannabis for adult use, have you noticed that there's more accessibility for patients or, or, and less of a, a stigma associated with patients coming in for the first time to explore options with medical cannabis? The transition from medical to adult use is, is a big one, actually. Um, you know, on the medical side, we have physicians who are there to hear what patients are, are dealing with, hear their struggles, understand their conditions, know what other medications they're on, etc. As adult use rolls out, we're sort of taking the physicians out of that equation um, and empowering people to make their own their own choices, um, which I think is great. I think people deserve to be empowered. Um, on the downside, you know, people can sometimes make choices that are not flattering or that might make them feel uncomfortable. And I would hate for people to have, you know, their initial experience be um, an uneducated one or certainly a, a misinformed one. Um, so on the downside, I think people also make unfortunate decisions. So I think my, my hope for the future is, is that there will be some kind of blend between quote unquote medical use um, and adult use. I think, you know, you could go around and ask the adults who are using what their reasons are and, some of them certainly use it socially, but a lot of them are using it, well, I had a rough day or I'm really stressed out or I want something that'll help me relax or I have a terrible muscle pain or, you know, my bones are rickety and, and painful, you know, which if you had a discussion with a doctor, we would qualify that as a medical use. So I think some of these terms are syntactical or, or um, esoteric um, and not really meaningful. Hey, tell me a little bit about why you started CED Foundation. For as long as I can remember, my home was full of curiosity um, and discovery about how the brain works, how it affected, how it is affected by our surroundings. You know, my early career was in brain and addiction research um, and through medical school, slowly but surely trying to piece together what drives the way people interact and the environments and over the next 20 odd years, I, I pursued the front lines of primary care, 
Um, I studied, you know, the brain, the body, trying to understand components of sort of a huge variety of suffering I, I saw all around me. I also saw that people felt let down by the American medical system. Half the Americans we, we know seek out alternative care, um, whether it's massage or yoga or acupuncture, people are looking outside of what they mostly consider a broken system. So my early days, I decided to look at cannabis and see a lot of my patients who had tried cannabis felt you know, better and seemed better off than the people who hadn't tried it. Um, so I dove in and decided to learn as much as I could about cannabis medicine. And in short time, it became crystal clear that this plant, rich with natural ingredients, zero really industry processing, was not only safe for people to consume as medicine, um, but in many cases actually worked better than the traditional medicines we'd been trying. So for me, from there, I took a path that would help me demystify cannabis, not just for my patients, but then, you know, I realized that some of the physicians around me had no idea. Um, the dispensaries who were dispensing this product really had no clear formula for why they were picking certain products, except for what they perceived as, as patient demand. You know, and I certainly look for the future and seeing the US Patent Office and how are they gonna learn what's what and what does what. You know, there's a huge need for concise, clear information and sort of safe delivery. Um, and I wanted to help make sure that that can be done in a guide, guided, appropriate way. So you must be rolling your eyes when, when you hear the federal government still defend the fact that cannabis belongs in Schedule One. What do you tell people who, who raise that issue with you? Mm -hmm. Cannabis has been so marginalized that, you know, we haven't been able to go to doctors. People don't understand that it's even a science. You know, I mean, when, when, when the industry first emerged, um, there was no analytical testing. You know, you had no idea what you were getting, um, no guidelines. States learned the importance of, of analytical, analytical testing the hard way. Um, you know, there was mold on product or, or they realized that people shouldn't be inhaling certain solvents and that bad things would happen. Um, it's been a completely disorganized mess. You know, I think we've had poor leadership from the top down. And one of the nice things about the emergence of the, of the cannabis medicine world is how much it's come from the grassroots, that it's really people who think that their experience is telling them something that the government is not telling them or that they're hearing on the news that, you know, people are going to jail for things that they aren't really thinking are so bad. Um, and I think people have stood up and voted and the industry we see is becoming mainstream because the people have wanted it that way. You know, I was really quite astonished to see this about face when it comes to hemp as well, coming from Congress and, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking out in favor of the hemp legislation that is there. And it, it seems as though that's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, our biggest challenge, I think, is just getting people to get away from that federal prohibition mindset in Congress. In your experience, do you really, do you think that uh, some of the pharmaceutical companies that are out there, do you think that they're responsible for helping to block some of this? Or, you know, what is, what is your knowledge or experience on that? It's a good question. I think what, what drives the industry one way or another is, is a mess. I think it's very complicated. I think some of it is historical precedent and, you know, it's very 
difficult for people to think outside the box, let alone step and take a stand outside the box. And certainly over time, certain players have accumulated enough money that they can pay to make sure that the way that they have things stays that way. Um, you know, whether it's the cigarette industry or the alcohol industry or the paper industry, actually, um, who might not want hemp around or if it's the pharmaceutical industry because they're making their profit from um, synthetic medications. Um, everybody sort of has a right, I think, and, a, and, a, and an opportunity to save face, to save their bottom line. But I think part of the problem is a massive absence of information and education. Um, because I think if um, each of those industries, if the pharmaceutical industry recognized the, the potential of, of cannabis, if the paper industry recognized um, how strong the hemp fibers are and how useful those could be in certain applications. If everybody sort of learned a little bit more, um, I think we'd have a completely different playing field. I tend to agree. And, you know, I'm wondering, there, I don't know if you heard that recently the makers of fentanyl uh, incis had been granted um, FDA approval to start marketing their synthetic CBD. <laughs> Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah, of course. Then they're not the only one. I mean, Sativex, Epidiolex, the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has been working on cannabis for a while, but they're basically playing skip step with the laws that don't really make sense. Um, and it's different state to state and the banking crisis. I mean, there's so many impediments here um, that it just seems like a, a laughing stock if the system is so broken. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the endocannabinoid system is, is such a, a miraculous system in, in how it regulates certain aspects of the human body. And it seems to me that that information should have been a part of medical school, you know, since before prohibition began. How do you think that doctors can best go about educating themselves about the system and how cannabis interacts if they just have absolutely zero education on the topic at this mm -hmm. point from medical school, which, you know, obviously most don't. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the, one of the huge advantages that medical school offers doctors um, is a set of skills to think clearly on their own and to discover solutions on their own based on primary evidence. And we have a massive internet, you know, I mean, I think it doesn't take more than a half a second to find 27 million hits for active components of cannabis. Um, you know, we're talking about 10 to 20,000 randomized controlled trials. Um, you know, there's an idea out there that's completely nebulous that there's not enough research in, in cannabis, but it's actually not at all accurate. Um, there's plenty of research, you know, for, for animal studies, for chemical studies, these are useful pieces of data. And plus, we can open up our ears and listen to our patients. And the people that are trying cannabis want to open that discussion with their physicians. And, and a lot of physicians feel scared to listen, I think, or, or because they don't feel comfortable or don't know enough, they don't start with just the patient in front of them. Um, you know, I think in the body, cannabis works the same way that all the other natural hormones work. And I think once um, the sort of basic points are there, I think that's going to draw natural curiosity from physicians. Now we talk about adrenaline, testosterone, estrogen, all these things, but we don't talk about the endocannabinoid system. Why? I think for two reasons. First, because over the last 60 years, there's been this log jam basically preventing adequate research around the functions of cannabis. We know now that 
cannabis has been part of the human culture for, for as long as we've recorded. And people generally have positive experiences with it. But in the US, there's a very strict roadblock on a federal level, obviously, um, preventing adequate understanding. But, but even in recent years, we've continued to, to learn more. And, and the lab evidence is, is there and easily accessible. Listening to patients, like I said, is easy to, to, to do. I don't know why it's so hard for physicians. Maybe it's, it's because we're all so busy and, and you know, we've spent so many years of our lives learning a certain trade and now we have to kind of sidestep outside of that. You know, I think maybe, maybe the way the industry will evolve is, is to have referral systems. Um, one of the things that I'm playing with is a clinic where regular physicians can refer to the seed clinic and they don't have to become experts. They just have to understand that there's a clinic there. And instead of the patient going to say an orthopedist or a rheumatologist, maybe the patient would like to learn more about cannabis and they can go over to a cannabis clinic. So maybe it doesn't have to be a sort of revolution for all doctors, but maybe it's a sidestep. Yeah, I've always thought that it would become its own specialty and that eventually the AMA would create a board certification for it. But I, I really like seeing that there's, uh, there's a number of conferences and educational forums where the AMA has actually approved the CME credits or the continuing medical education credits. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was... I wasn't unpressed, actually. I mean, I, I think I, beggars can't be choosers. Um, and it's great that some information is getting out there. I think um, at a very basic level, it's very satisfactory. I think um, there's a level of clinical application. There's a level of understanding what's happening, what the sort of um, factors affecting um, a, a certain effect are that, are that are really relevant and almost eclipse the esoteric cannabinoid data that, that doctors might sort of download from, from those um, CMEs. You know, to be, to be concrete with that, I think when someone's taking cannabis, it's not just the amount used, the sort of dosage, but it's the strain that's there, the route that someone's taking it, what the setting is, if they have a full stomach or they're hydrated, um, if they had a fatty meal or not a fatty meal, um, someone is really experienced with cannabis, it's going to be quite different than if they're not. Um, someone's individual biochemistry, if you know, a, a superstar athlete might be very different than someone who's not so athletic at all. Um, someone's mood also affects the experience. I mean, there's so many things that are nuanced about cannabis um, that CME credit or studying online just doesn't, doesn't lay out. And likewise, I think that, you know, when especially in states that have just begun to embrace the medical side of this in dispensaries, you know, it's, it, it really is quite astonishing. And I've walked into a number of them just uh, for my own edification to see how, how it's working in the, in the dispensaries and, you know, really people who are uh, technicians, sales technicians, you know, dispensing medical cannabis you know, are in this position to be answering questions from patients and they're not really qualified to be answering those questions. And I've found that lately a lot of people are getting away from, you know, giving any kind of advice because I think that there's this uh, underpinning of fear that someday one of these dispensaries will be sued for giving you know, bad advice to say a cancer patient who's looking for relief because uh, he or she read something on the internet that someone else cured their stage four cancer with it. So 
I mean, what would you advise patients uh, to do if they don't have access to the clinics where the doctors are actually educated on the endocannabinoid system? It's a great question. It's very complicated. I think, I think on the one hand, any information is, is potentially better than no information, um, except just about every day I hear stories from patients where they're getting bad information. So I think I'll qualify that by saying good information is better than no information, um, but it behooves the patient to figure out kind of what good information sources are. I mean, if you have, if you have a rumbling in your car, you're not going to go ask a librarian. Um, if you're looking for a book, you're not going to go ask the auto mechanic. I think when people go into a dispensary, it should be more clear that the folks behind the desk are more or less baristas um, for cannabis. And, and they, they might have tremendous knowledge on their own and from their own experience, just like your coffee server will have great information about coffee, um, but you wouldn't necessarily talk about your arthritic pain with your barista. And I think you're right. I think there's, there's potential for problems down the road if, if the bud tenders are not being clear about their limitations. Um, I think behind that, there is also no structure for people to teach those bud tenders. Through the dispensaries that I've seen, there really is no organized system, which is partly why I created my foundation to be able to be a resource for them to learn. You know, I do, I do a little bit of a nutty thing with my patients and I tell them that when I see them, um, I want them to engage with me as a membership. That if they have questions over time, that they should come back to me as the source. Um, and I'd rather have patients, you know, Googling everything they want to learn and then checking with me to see, hey, is this stuff really accurate? Is this useful? So there's a, there's a space forming there, which is, you know, who's, who's going to educate the bud tenders? Who's going to educate the population? Who's going to educate the dispensaries about what information they should or shouldn't have or how they can guide patients? And that space is where I created the Seed Foundation. I mean, I think that's the need that I saw that I could be able to fill. Yeah, and I, <laughs> there were a couple of things on, on the site that I thought were um, really poignant. I mean, it's true, the days of cannabis being burned and inhaled are over. Mm -hmm. uh, right, an innovative and growing industry is providing physicians and patients a multitude of safer treatment options. You know, I think one of the, the biggest, trans the most transformational advances was getting people who gravitated toward cannabis before it became legal out of that mindset that, that marijuana should only be smoked or is only smoked. And finding that there's, there's a safety net in regulation. Uh, we had an experience here, which I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, up in an area called Yavapai County here in Arizona. There are a couple of district attorneys there that, I mean, personally, I'm convinced that they're getting money from industries that would have uh, cannabis go away forever. But they wound up prosecuting someone who was in possession of tinctures, and I believe that they were tinctures containing both CBDs and, and THC, which is legal here under our medical marijuana program. But because the medical law did not define those extracts as marijuana, and our law technically only defined marijuana as, as the flower that is traditionally smoked, 
they determined and a court agreed with them and uh, dispensed a ruling saying that those extracts are not legal in the state of Arizona. So, so basically putting all the patients who are using anything other than smokable flour at risk of being arrested in that county, which is complete, it's, it's such a sham if you ask me. But, you know, when, when you see things or when you hear about things like that, as a doctor, what would you tell those district attorneys who've been pushing for this to go away? What would be your biggest take home for them? I think, again, it, it speaks to the level of misinformation that's permeated the whole culture. You know, smoking is almost universally discouraged by anybody who knows what they're talking about. Um, the active compounds in cannabis all boil the temperatures under 450 degrees. The temperature of flame for a joint or a bowl is close to a thousand degrees hotter than that. That extra temperature is just serving to incinerate what someone pays good money for, um, not to mention six odd toxins or more that also come with cigarette smoke, things like naphthalene, toluene, benzene, carbon monoxide, tar, ash, all of which don't belong in our bodies. Um, so the idea that, you know, first of all, that legislators are telling anybody what is healthy or not healthy seems like we're talking to the mechanic about the library again. I think we need <laughs> such have, a funny analogy. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's ridiculous. Um, and, and it's, it's bizarre because they, they don't need to feel qualified to do that. We have physicians everywhere who are and want to help. Um, so I think the, the, you know, the idea that legislators don't ask for guidance from physicians is, is silly. I think, you know, but on the other hand, one of the problems is that a lot of, legisl a lot of legislation is guided by two, two groups of, of medical advisors, one who's pro, one who's against, and the information they have is not necessarily accurate. And that's a real problem when the experts in our culture are not educated. You know, and I've seen way too many physicians who are in positions of authority giving information which is not accurate. And that's a real problem. I think that comes from a need, I guess, or the, the solution comes from a need to educate physicians in medical school, but it also, we have to have a culture that supports acceptance of, of the unknown and learning. And businesses, as they thrive, need to help fund good research and good education. Um, we have to see that as a, as a cultural priority. Yeah, it's very frustrating to be knowledgeable about this and hear any kind of publicity that completely contradicts what the new science has proven to be mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And so I think that cannabis also has the potential to completely transform uh, medicine and, and get us out of the open. You said you had experience in brain and addiction early on in your career. And I can only imagine that that experience has completely merged with what you know now about cannabis. Have, are, do you still find yourself working with people who are trying to wean off of their addiction to opiates, for example, and use cannabis to do so? Oh, yeah, every day. I mean, I saw three patients just today um, who are trying to get off their Percocet or... or um, Benzos is a really other uh, is a really addictive medicine that other people are trying to get off of um, every single day. I mean, this is 
This is incredibly common. I mean, you have a country now, last year, 62,000 people died from overdoses of, of opiates. This is a huge problem. And I think people understand it's a problem, but they don't understand how successful cannabis is as a solution. Um, I have, I would guess, between 60 and 80% of the people that come in that are on opiates that they want to get off of, um, 60 to 80% of those get off of them or, well, I would say more than a majority get off of them um, completely. And some of them still have an opiate from now, now and again, but it's, it's a huge success. Yeah, and unfortunately, I still hear people saying, oh, I'm in treatment, so I can't even try cannabis. You know, and I'm not going to give them any advice myself, but it's just, I find it astonishing. And I wish that there were organizations out there that were going door to door with some of these treatment centers to say, hey, don't discourage your patients from exploring cannabis as a viable option, because not only will it help them with the pain that uh, caused them to gravitate toward the opiate addiction in the first place, but it might actually help them to reduce their cravings and reduce their addiction in general, maybe even save their lives. I mean, have you seen anything like that in the works? Um, I mean, I've certainly seen like uh, drug testing places or, or, or drug, no. I've seen opiate treatment centers who will test patients for cannabis and then deny them treatment if they test positive. Um, I mean, that's it's very complicated because some of those places are funded federally and they, they aren't allowed to see cannabis as anything but illegal. But it's really frustrating to see that it's not science that's driving this sort of protocol, that it's really you know, either the legal system or their, their, their funding. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a problem everywhere. I think you know, people have to first want more information and they have to be allowed to think scientifically. You know, I think the, the, the laws in this country make it difficult for people, even who want to, to behave differently. You know, in hospital systems right now, um, one of the nursing contracts prohibits them from giving a substance which is federally illegal. So there's no scenario now nationally in hospitals where that, that nurses could give cannabis because of their nursing contracts. I mean, not, not to mention all the hospital contracts and their federal relationships. But we have a um, entrenched system that is built on misinformation around cannabis. It's, it's, a, it's a real problem. I think it's also happening in the VA as well. You know, even though they've, they've passed that regulation saying that the VA won't interfere with cannabis treatment for veterans in states where it's legal. But time and again, I hear testimony from veterans about uh, even in states where medical cannabis is legal, they still run up against roadblocks with the, with the VA. And I mean, it is just so unfortunate. Have you worked with a lot of uh, veterans as well? Yeah, hundreds. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I think for a group of people that's so tough and has contributed so much to our well-being kind of as American citizens, for them to be marginalized by a federal system is so horribly ironic. Um, and they're all frustrated. And, and actually, lately, they're starting to unionize. And we're really starting to see veterans groups come together and push for more thoughtful legislation. I think they've been actually one of the leadership groups that I'm most inspired by. Yeah, I, I recently interviewed a veteran by the name of Leo Bridgewater, who 
has been, he's had a lot of success lobbying the state of New Jersey to add PTSD. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. And that is that whereas you and I can go and try to talk to someone in, in Congress or in a state assembly, and, you know, they'll give us the yeses and uh, we'll look into that or whatever response they're going to give us. But when they're talking to a veteran, there's a whole new level of respect that they either feel obligated or compelled to infuse into, into their thought process. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more veterans who speak out about cannabis, the more likely it is that, that some of these lawmakers who are stuck in the reefer madness mentality the more likely they are to start listening. And I think you're right. They're so marginalized. Um, you know, anybody who fights for the freedom of the general public in our country should be granted the freedom to choose whatever medicine works to help them overcome PTSD and, and all of the other wounds of war that they suffer because they're out giving service to their country. And it is heartbreaking to me to to see anyone lose their benefits because they were on one program of, you know, heavy opiate and benzos and SSRIs and all of the other drugs that they're handing out like candy to veterans through the VA doctors, you know, to see any of them lose any kind of benefits or be relegated to an addiction treatment program because they tested positive for THC in their system or to, you know, worse, be arrested and then lose their honorable discharge or all of that. It's just, it really is quite frustrating. And as a doctor, I can only imagine that when you hear stories like this, it it must make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Yeah, of course. I think we're we're dealing with, you know, we've we've talked through legislative ways that solutions can come. We've talked to through the the courts and, and the way that the laws aren't right. Um, locally, I think I found it so frustrating that that was one of the major reasons for me to step outside of the system and really move in a, in a kind of privatized direction. I think companies um, might be some of the solution. I think, you know, I, I paired up with, with a private company who's doing some really interesting tech and they have, you know, they've recognized, look, we have really complicated patients and we really have, have a complicated product here. Why don't we create something that makes it easier for people to match? And once people are matching in a healthy way, they're going to want it and they don't need necessarily the whole system to change if they can get what they need. Um, So sort of going around the system's obstacles. And I think, you know, we have to do what we do. And and this is, this is the American way is to find the right way of doing it. And if if our government isn't doing things that we want to do, we as a people and the system that we have lets us make sure that we get what we want. I think we're lucky that way. I think so too. I mean, well, at least in, in theory and in constitutional <laughs> rights, we have, <laughs> we have those options. We have the freedom to speak out and to challenge the laws that exist right now. I was really heartened to see the group of, um, it's actually quite a varied group of individuals who are out there suing Jeff Sessions, the DEA and the Department of Justice for denying medicine to a little girl who's 12 years old, who is pinned into her state. Um, And actually, we plan to interview several of them in the future. We interviewed, uh, well, Leo Bridgewater, who I just mentioned, he was one of the the people who is a plaintiff on that lawsuit, as is Jose Balin, who we have also interviewed. 
And then there's Alexis Bortel, who's 12 years old, an epilepsy patient who can't travel outside of the state of Colorado without risking her life. And it was actually thrown out of court recently, but they are appealing and they're using antiquated laws to justify you know, the reasons why they threw it out. They're, they're citing case law that really has absolutely no basis in truth. <laughs> it's very frustrating, but I am heartened to see that kind of thing happening. And in Massachusetts, do you feel that the public has fully embraced what's happened there? Um, no, I don't think the, pu- the public has fully embraced um, cannabis. I think it's come a huge long way. Um, I think Massachusetts um, is one of the most progressive states. You know, we came up with the idea of, of universal health care well before the, it was on the radar of the rest of the nation. Um, and I think people, people here are more academically driven. I think they're more um, respectful of science. And I think that really persuades the whole discussion. Um, I saw, I think, two or three years ago, patients coming in, they were reticent to talk about cannabis. Um, they were certainly not engaging with their physician. And slowly but surely over a year, they were opening up to physicians. And then a year later, the physicians are starting to come back. And I think we're starting to see the whole culture move that way, where people are not only open to it and vocal about it, um, that they're okay, that this is really not the nightmare that everybody has made it out to be. Um, but I think that's happening faster in Massachusetts, obviously California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, all the kind of liberal states seem to be leading the way. Um, but I think, you know, to your point about, about the little girl, we also have to care about the other states that are not so open-minded. Um, and these are fellow American citizens, they're fellow veterans, they have rights to do with their bodies as, as they choose. So I think we really need to not just make this a state-by-state thing, but we really have to come together as a American people to bring some common sense nationally. Yeah, one of the advantages though of the continued federal prohibition in, you know, just from my observation is that the cannabis industry itself has had an opportunity to spread its wings independent of FDA strangeness in terms of, you know, regulating and and without uh, interference other than the lobbyists who are trying to prevent it from happening from the big agriculture or or the pharmaceuticals who who would adulterate the purity of of cannabis as as a holistic medicine Mm -hmm. so you know and one of my fears and i don't know if you share this uh fear as well or not but one of my greatest fears about the end of federal prohibition is the fact that we will start seeing the likes of uh, INSYS and Monsanto and uh, other big businesses that do lobby to uh, get rid of the regulations that would cost them money in the long run. And, you know, to to see any kind of adulteration of the cannabis plant would just be a heartbreak for this industry. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the, the prohibition has definitely stimulated human ingenuity. I mean, the, the fact that one can't bring cannabis across state lines has spawned the genetic world to innovate and be able to sequence cannabis genes and disease 
down to the genes so that you could you could communicate sort of with DNA across borders um, and have solutions, have strains of cannabis that you can translate across. And that's been a fantastic uh, advancement. Um, you know, I think we are already, we are already surrounded by organizations that have, uh, let's call it less than ideal um, ruling. You know, the, the FDA, the DEA, NIDA, these are all groups that are, that have a bias, that have a perspective and have huge influence. You know, I think the Monsantos of the world also will have influence, but I think because, I don't know, maybe it's optimistic um, or idealistic that because this industry has come up from really the ground up, it's really the people overcoming such adverse odds that I have hope, I think, for cannabis in a way that hasn't really um, emerged from any other industry, any other technology. I think this will be different. Um, and part of it also is because of the effects of cannabis. You know, you can see people driving down the road and they're angry and they'll flip one another off. Um, but if you saw, you know, two people who should not certainly be not driving under the influence of cannabis, but in theory, just for the sake of the, the sort of um, the situation, you would see them kind of waving to each other or giving peace signs, or it's very kind of positive and happy as an experience. Um, and I think that's going to have a cultural effect too, you know, not, not just to mention the fact that people are going to be sleeping better and less anxious um, because they're, you know, hopefully appropriately consuming cannabis. Um, but you have a spirit that's going to be different. That's not going to be as awful. You know, I mean, we have people who are, who are drunk and hungover and, you know, smoking up a storm and, and smelling terribly. You know, we have a really sort of sour culture around the things which are legal and common now. And that's all going to change. I mean, as cannabis becomes a daily thing, we're going to see it popping up everywhere. Yeah, I think that's actually a brilliant analogy that you gave there. And, and I, I agree. I mean, I've always thought that if cannabis were legal worldwide, there wouldn't be any wars. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly we wouldn't be fighting wars over, over um, fossil fuels either. <laughs> you know? it's, al it's almost as if an element of what it means to be human has been missing from the discussion for a long time. Yeah, and cannabis has been, like you said early on, the it's been part of our culture and part of the, the medical vernacular for thousands of years before prohibition began. And in fact, I think uh, within the last five years or so, uh, the most there was a recent discovery, I believe in China, where a medicine man's bag was discovered with remnants of hemp leaves inside that dates back like 4000 BC, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I, I think that it was close to 4000 BC. So yeah, before recorded history, mm -hmm. cannabis has been a huge part of human life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so many people don't realize that you know, even George Washington enjoyed his whole plant tea at the end of the day. You know, it, it's, it's pretty astonishing how we got away from that and the public was allowed to be convinced that marijuana is the devil's weed and, 
you know, when it really is just God's gift to humankind to keep us healthy. That's <laughs> yeah, interesting. You know, these days, I think our culture, the American culture is a little bit more hyper aware of, you know, news versus fake news and the idea that complete fabrications can come from people who are standing at a podium. Um, but obviously, the current situation is not the first, and we've had um, a series of presidents and federal institutions that are telling a story, which is just not true. Um, but I think these days people are more aware of that. And I think, you know, history might be on our side, but we have to fight against a system that really is money driven and driven against necessarily science. Yeah, and, and driven by the special interests who stand to lose the most if hemp or medical marijuana or any, any form of cannabis, adult use, medical use, or industrial use happens to become legal. I've got a question for you, too, because I know your, your practice is dedicated to cannabis. Mm -hmm. And one of the fears that's been expressed to me by a number of MDs that I've spoken with is, is the... Um, threat of losing their DEA license to practice medicine by writing prescriptions for conventional pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. um, how have you handled that in, in your practice? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't prescribe cannabis and I, and I see patients both in the cannabis world and in the regular family medicine world. Um, but in Massachusetts and actually most of the states, physicians are not actually prescribing cannabis. Um, what we're doing is offering a recommendation, and it's kind of a, a wink nudge around the system, um, but it's a, but it's a, a meaningful difference. I'm not I'm not describing to patients what doses of medicines to take or how exactly they should take it. I'm basically outlining, in theory, you know, general concepts um, and educating patients about ways that will help them. Um, you know, the the the. The idea that there's a red target on a physician's back um, is ludicrous. You know, we're trying to educate patients. We're trying to teach them about chemistry, about biology, about the, the, the potential medicines around them. The fact that there's so much misinformation makes it complicated. Um, but in my practice, it's really about education and information dissemination. It's not about directives. It's not about... Um, you know, connecting specific dots for people. It's really more about overarching broad strokes. And the fact that we keep it that general makes it safe, um, both for us as clinicians with licenses that are subject to um, regulatory oversight and also for those regulatory bodies. Um, if they understand that we're not, you know, putting people at risk, then we have nothing to lose. Yes, I... I can understand that um, significant difference between recommending and prescribing, but even you know with the the physicians that haven't embraced uh, this practice yet, or or the um, the concept of of advocating for cannabis, you know that fear is real, even though it is kind of ridiculous that that they might think that there's a target on their back to lose their DEA license. Yeah, so. I think the deeper question is, is that fear is, is actually, it's appropriate, although misplaced. Um, the discussion with patients is about benefits and risks. If someone comes to me with a certain condition, they want to know, is cannabis going to help them or is it going to cause other trouble? And that depends, that discussion depends on useful information. And if physicians aren't 
um, learning don't have that useful information, they're not going to be able to have that discussion in a meaningful way. So I think those physicians shouldn't. Um, but the solution is not just throw your hands up and give up. The solution is become informed, learn about it, and then have that discussion. Yeah, totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. Oh, I'm getting a signal that it is coming close to a time to wrap it up. So are there any last thoughts, anything that you have a burning desire to let people know about um, you or your practice or, or about um, the future of cannabis and medicine in general? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been fantastic talking with you. I think, um, you know, I'm not one to pat myself on the back or sort of boost my own agenda. I think I'm just trying to do what I think is the right thing. Um, and I think for me, it's encouraging when I meet other people like that, where we're just trying to help. And I think, you know, there are people out there who recognize that the system is, is not working um, and there are solutions. Um, and, you know, maybe the way I approach it isn't, isn't perfect or isn't the right way, but it's what I'm doing. I'm doing what I think is best. Um, and hopefully, you know, people will recognize that and hopefully we can make some, some positive impact. Um, you know, I think we have to be optimistic. We have a pretty um, amazing country with a pretty amazing constitution. And it's not perfect and politicians sure anything except perfect, but we're trying, you know, and I think that's the best that I do. And that's what I think people should do too. You know, if they're curious, they should pursue that curiosity, learn more, talk to people around them. Um, you know, the whole industry became what it is now because people on, on the smallest scale have pursued their curiosity. And I think that's the, that's the way that we'll all get where we want to be is, is to try and do our best. Thank you for that insight. I mean, uh, really, it seems as though you're doing amazing work uh, out there. And, and I hope to see you at some of these other conferences. Um, there are a number of them coming up where I'll probably be speaking and hopefully you will be too. And I, I really um, hope that people listening, especially in the states uh, where your, your state assemblies have not yet embraced any new legislation and you, you haven't been able to get the, the voter initiatives on the ballot quite yet, um, I think that, that if, if you have an opportunity to go to a state near you and go to one of these conferences and hear people like Dr. Kaplan uh, talk about the advantages of having access to medical cannabis in your state, I really encourage you to do it. And I also encourage you to pick up the phone, call your legislators, call your congressional representatives, your senators, your state representatives, and just encourage them to educate themselves and uh, reach out to those who are knowledgeable if they don't really understand it themselves. And, you know, eventually I have faith that cannabis will be a staple medicine once again in our country. So with that, I would like to say another personal thank you to my guest, Dr. Ben Kaplan, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you would like to learn more about the work he's doing at the Seed Foundation or any uh, upcoming talks that he'll be giving, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And I will post his bio along with information and a link to his website. We have a lot of other people to thank. 
First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle, Health Terra, and of course, Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Eric Vidal, the composer of our beautiful theme song, Evergreen, our engineers, our producers, and my partners, especially our publisher, Star Simmons, and CTO, Christian Nolan, for making us shine and keeping us running. I'd also like to thank our program directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thank you to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. You're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra. For only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24-7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.